If you have a Bible, they can turn to Genesis chapter 50. You can go to Genesis 50. That's the last book in the book of Genesis. We'll be a little bit in chapter 49 this morning. We'll spend uh, a good chunk of time in chapter 50 as well. Two of the great enemies in the world that we would either seek to ignore or that we would become wrongly consumed with despair over are the evil in the world, what we often call the problem of evil, and also the reality of death. So the fact that there is evil, that there are people that are working against what is good, and the fact that death exists in the world, these two things are real, and we will either ignore them, or we will become consumed with them. Usually we don't like to think about the pain that's in the world that's caused by sin. Uh, we certainly don't want to think about death. We don't want to think about uh, buying a burial plot. We don't want to think about where we will one day be laid to rest. But the evil in the world and the reality that have to be addressed by any religion that's going to seek to make sense of the world that we live in. Because these are the two things that often either keep people from understanding Christianity, or any religion for that matter, um, or there are the questions that people are seeking to have answers to. So what we do with this, how we think about evil, the, the evil that surrounds us, and how we think about this final enemy of death, it reveals something deep about, deep about our faith. But Jacob and, and Joseph, as we end here with them, their entire family has faced much evil in their lives. Um, some of it they brought upon themselves, some of it came from outside. And now, in this chapter, we see them face death. And the way that they respond to both of these things with faith teaches us that in the face of death and evil, we can trust God's sovereignty. And sovereignty has been such a big theme in this. And it comes again to a head here in chapter 50 at the end. In the face of death and evil, these two great enemies, in the face of death and evil, we can trust God's sovereign hand. Find that God has given us a thing that we need to think rightly about evil and everything that we need to think about the reality of death. So this passage is going to begin at the end of chapter 49 with uh, the death and the burial of Jacob. And then at the end of the whole book, at the end of chapter 50, it's going to end with the death and the burial of Joseph. And in between, uh, we find an interaction between Joseph and his brothers that sort of ties together not only the story of Joseph, but the entire book of Genesis, as it were. And it gives us a key theological truth that we can write over the story of Joseph, we can write it over the story of Jacob, we can write it over the whole story of Genesis, we can write it over all of Scripture, we can write it over all of human history. It's a deep theological truth that we're going to be pushing toward now and thinking about it um, this morning. But let's read Genesis 49, beginning in verse 29, through the end of the book. It says in Genesis 49, 29, Then he, this is Jacob, commanded them, that is his sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, 
in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham fought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field in the cave that is in it, were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drove his feet into the bed, breathed his last, but was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. So that is how many are required for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he may be swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians, therefore the place was called Abel Mizraim, beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph went when they spoke. Joseph wept. When they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third, of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. 
when Joseph died, he was 110 years old. They embalmed him. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. In the face of death and evil, we can trust God's sovereign hand. We'll think about this passage in two parts. We'll think about death, and we'll think about evil. Um, and so we'll start by seeing what this passage says about how we face death with faith. The report of Jacob's death and burial are found in Genesis 49, verse 29 through uh, 50, 14. At the end of Genesis 49, having just addressed each of his sons, Jacob gives them all the instructions that he had given to Joseph back at the end of chapter 47, you remember, uh, namely that he wanted to be buried in the cave, and very specific in the cave, in the field of Machpelah, east of Mary, in the land of Canaan, the cave, and the field that were purchased by his grandfather Abraham when Abraham's wife Sarah had died. Very specific, repeated over and over again, a very important place. This is the cave where the patriarchs were buried, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, and Rebecca is the place where Jacob had buried his wife Leah, and it's also the place that Jacob wanted to be buried. I found it interesting in chapter 50, verse 5, it says that Jacob had in fact hewed out, dug out a spot for himself in that cave, and that's where he owned his son's companion. I imagine that whenever he buried Leah, uh, which is not recorded in Scripture, uh, whenever he buried her there, I, I would think that he took the time in that moment where he was laying his wife to rest, that he also made a spot in the cave for himself, knowing that he one day too would be laid to rest. Can you imagine that, that process, digging your own grave? Uh, it reminds me at times if you walk through a cemetery and you see the headstone of, of maybe a couple, and there's, there's one that has the name and the birth date and the death date, and then there's another that has the name, the birth date, and then nothing. And that's the spot that they will be buried, and they know that. One has died, and the other one will join them one day, and the gravesite is prepared. And maybe, I don't know if you've ever, if you've purchased a burial plot, you know that at some point people start mailing you things and saying, would you like to buy a burial plot? That might be a unique moment in your life. Maybe you, like Jacob, know where you want to be buried. Just imagine Jacob, decades before this very moment, he's, he's physically digging his own grave. Now, we usually use that phrase, you know, to dig your own grave. Uh, we use that to mean that someone's past choices that, that they have had may, may have caused future problems. It's the same idea of, well, you made your bed, now you got to lie in it. You know, that, that sort of same idea. And Jacob had done that too, hadn't he? When you think about his past mistakes and the pain that it brought into his life, very often he did that. We saw that with his sons, Reuben and Simeon and Levi. They had dug their own graves. But here also, Jacob digs his own grave. And he does it in faith. He believes the promises of God and he continues to stake a claim in the land of promise. For all of his failures, his faith was in the goodness of God and the surety of God's promises. And so yet again, we're reminded that uh, how we live, how we prepare to die, that reveals what we believe our home truly is. Are we like the, those who were buried in the cave in Canaan, who were looking not simply for an earthly country? Hebrews 11, 9-10 says of Abraham, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with 
Isaac and Jacob, heirs with them of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, and the designer and builder of God. What about us? Are we looking forward and living forward to the eternal city? The description in chapter 50 that follows seems to emphasize the, the greatness of Jacob in the eyes not only of his people, but also the people of Egypt. He's He is involved, which is an expensive and extensive process, took 40 days, it says. He's grieved over for 70 days, which one uh, commentary I read said is just two days shy of how long they would grieve for a pharaoh. So this is a pretty big deal. We see that Joseph is faithful, takes his father uh, to Canaan as he had promised. He asks Pharaoh for permission to take his father to to Canaan, and Pharaoh grants that permission. And then we see that many people... Um, from Egypt and from Jacob's household, uh, minus the children, the flocks, and the herds, they all had Canaan. We're told in verse 9 that it was a great company, and then in verses 10 and 11 we find that there was great mourning, recognized even by the Canaanites in the land. Then verses 12 through 14 tell us that uh, his sons did just as Jacob had commanded, they buried him in the tomb of the patriarchs, and then everyone returned back to Egypt. In this process of traveling to Canaan, of mourning and burying Jacob, we see a fulfillment in part of the promise made to Abraham that God would make his name great, and the name of his descendants great. Even in a foreign land, Jacob is honored. He is lifted up. He's not forgotten. Even the Egyptians were here. As we look at the, the final days of Jacob, we look at the way he dies, how he's laid to rest. I think two questions that lend towards application come to mind. The first we touched on a little bit, the second maybe a little new. These are the two questions. Where is our hope, and what is our legacy? Where is our hope, and what is our legacy? Where is our hope? Well, as we consider the fact that one day we too, uh, maybe like Jacob, will pull our feet up into our bed, we'll breathe our last, and we'll be gathered to our people. Or maybe we will die in tragedy. However we die, where is our hope? And how sure is our hope? There are some people who die with some sort of vague hope, some general hope that most decent people go to heaven and it's only the really bad people that go to the other place. What's that hope based on? Jacob dies. Jacob dies as a guy who wrestled with God. As a guy who had seen true blessing was found in God. He dies with complete confidence, complete confidence that his people will return to Canaan because he had complete confidence in the word of God, that what God said he would do. So too for us, if we are in Christ, we have we have deep hope, we have deep confidence. We can know that Jesus has died so that we do not have to face eternal death. That Jesus has risen, so we will rise. That Jesus has ascended, so we will ascend. That he will come again and gather all those who are his children by faith. And we'll be with it forever. Our hope is in a kingdom that is outside this world. And our hope is in the sure word of God. Seen in the word of God made flesh. And Jesus comes and dies for us. Where is our hope? Our hope is in Christ. It is sure. And our hope is in heaven. Tied closer to that question is what is our legacy? What will we be remembered for? Jacob was a heel-grabbing, conniving trickster, and we remember him for that, in part. 
But in the end, he's a guy who understood his sin and who understood God's grace. He was a man who was respected and revered by his children, not because he was perfect. They all knew that he was not perfect, but because he had come to understand the grace of God and had been faithful. His legacy was not only seen in the way that he's mourned and buried, but in the way that his son, Joseph, was buried. We read Joseph's final words, and he sounds a lot like his dad, doesn't he? Talks about the promises. Talks about how they're going to be, they're going to go to this land of promise. He believed what his dad said. His dad had passed that on to him. I mean, think about Joseph. He has amazing power in Egypt. And yet he knows that his true identity is not as the second in command in Egypt. His true identity is that he is a member of the family who is blessed and chosen by God. Think about how many years of Joseph's life he spent in the land of Canaan. 17. The majority of his life was spent in Egypt, but he learned from his dad that that's not where they really belong, that he was just sort of sojourning there. So the church, brothers and sisters, our legacy, we exist in part because men and women like Jacob passed down the truths of the gospel so that sinners like you and me can know God's forgiveness. That's Our hope is in a different kingdom, but we know that because Abraham told Isaac, and Isaac told Jacob, and Jacob told his sons, and Joseph believed it, and Joseph told everyone, and, and, and on down the line, all the way to us. And that's what we are to do, not just as families, but as a church. What is our legacy? Is our legacy money? Is our legacy success in this world? Or is our legacy the eternal promises of God? Is that what we're passing on to the next generation? Where Where is our hope? Are we, are we despairing over this, the things that happen in the world? Are we despairing over this election process? Are we teaching those that follow after us that if something terrible happens in America, all of our dreams will be crushed? Or do we live for the glory of God? Do we live for some different country? And we teach those who follow after us that that's where our hope lies. Egypt, America, they can all fade into the sand. It doesn't really matter. Because we have a city whose builder and maker is built. It's interesting that death is something we want to avoid, but yet it's, it's something that's coming at us no matter what. The, the song by a guy named John Foreman, it's a conversation between two friends, and one of them is dying, and the other one doesn't want him to die. And the friend who is near death sings this. He says, friend, all along I thought I was learning how to take how to bend, not how to break. How to live, not how to cry. But really, I've been learning how to die. I like that. That much of our lives is not learning how to how to not break or how to not cry. It's actually we're learning how to die. That's what we're figuring out. How do we die well? We are called to live, but we're called to live in the in light of the fact that God, in God's sovereign plan, we will die. And much of our life is learning how to die. Well, now if we want to die well, we'll answer two questions. Where is our hope? And what will be our legacy? God's sovereignty over the future helps us to face death with faith. It also helps us to, to face evil. That's the second thing we want to look at. God's sovereignty, trusting in God's sovereignty, allows us to face death. It can also let us face the evil in this world. And we see that in verses 15 through 21 in this interaction between 
Joseph's brothers and Joseph. Funerals are, are unique. Funerals have a strange way. They bring out the best and the worst in families. Um, they unite families in grief. The ultimate reality of death is made clear as you stand by a casket and there's a hole in the ground and it just it brings long lost relatives back, children, brothers, and sisters, and parents return to pay their last respects and to be reunited with family. But funerals also divide people. In the midst of grief, people are emotionally charged. They're not thinking straight sometimes. And the pain and their anguish can lead to irrational emotions that cause divisions that can last years and decades. Unite us, and funerals can divide us. Just think about that. Remember that that's what's going on here. Their father has died. This is a funeral. And following the funeral of, of Jacob, we find the brothers of Joseph are filled with fear. The reality of their father's death has sort of settled in on them, and they have grieved for him, and now they're scared for themselves. They're wondering if the passing of Jacob will mean that it's a reckoning day for their sin against their brother, who is now exalted over them. This, this happens, doesn't it? I'm not going to get revenge. I'm not going to do X, Y, Z. But when that generation dies, and they're not here to judge me for it, then I'll do exactly what I want to do. And so out of this fear, the brothers hatch a plan. They send word to Joseph, and they tell him what I believe is a lie, that one of their father's dying wishes was that Joseph not repay the evil that, that, was, that the brothers had done to him. So they're seeking forgiveness through a lie by appealing to their father's authority and Joseph's love for their father. Sounds like something Jacob would do now that I think about it. Uh, they say, Joseph, forgive us for the sake of your father and his memory and his, his dying wish. They inadvertently admit their wrongdoing. They don't say it clearly. They, they put words into Jacob's mouth and they say, our, word, our deeds were evil. But they don't think that confession even is, is enough. They bring something else. They bring themselves and they say, we will be your servants. We need your forgiveness, Joseph. We don't believe that you really gave it to us back then. So we're kind of trying to cover over what we did. And we're also trying to earn your forgiveness. Joseph receives this message and his response is what? He weeps. I mean, think about this guy. Joseph has just buried his father, and now his brothers are cowering before him in fear. They come into his presence, they bow down. Remember, that was the prophecy, that was the dream. And it all sort of floods back to him again. And he's been rejected by his brothers, it feels like again. And all that emotion fills him, and he just he weeps. He weeps because they've not received the forgiveness that he offered. He longs for brothers who will stand with him, brothers who have been absent the vast majority of life. Instead, he has people who think that they need to be subjects, people who are afraid of him. It's his response in this moment that I think forms one of the great statements about forgiveness and about the sovereignty of God in all of the Bible. Joseph's words summarize his own life as well as the entire book of Genesis. And they give us a truth that runs all throughout Scripture and fills us with comfort and fills us with confidence in God. Look again at verses 19 through 21. They're worth reading again. Joseph says to his brothers, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. As he comforted them, he spoke kindly to them. This truth, this truth that God can take all of the evil in the world and turn it for good is life changing. It's a truth that we should carry with us all of our lives. I want to think about it in a couple of angles. I want to think about how we respond to the evil that is done to us personally, and I want to think about how we respond to the evil that in, in a larger sense, the, the evil that exists in the world, the problem of evil. So think first about responding to the evil that's done against us, because that's what Joseph is responding to. His brothers have sinned against him. How do we respond to the evil against us, and how, do, how does Joseph? Look at his words sort of broadly first. There, I think there's three parts to them. First, he, he recognizes that he is not God. So if we're going to break down what Joseph says. The first thing that he does is he recognizes that he is not God. Don't fear, am I in the place of God? Now, is he in the place of God? I would say no and yes. He is not in the place of, the, of God because it's obviously true that he is not God. But he is in the place of God in some ways. Pharaoh was considered a god. Joseph is second in command. He has the power to act like God. He can do whatever he wants. What's Pharaoh's response then to every request that Joseph has? Sure, do it. Do whatever you want, Joseph. Joseph could do whatever he wanted to do his brothers. He had complete authority and power to punish them in any way that he wanted. But Joseph denies that power. He denies the fact that he that the idea that he has the right to that power. He denies the, the, the thought that he can enact justice and vengeance on his brother. As I listened to Tim Keller, he said he doesn't, he doesn't take God's seat. That's God's chair of judgment. That's not Joseph's chair. Who's, who, who, who owns vengeance? Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay you. I'm the one that does that. Joseph, it's not your job. When people sin against us, our natural sinful reaction is to retaliate, find vengeance, take justice into our own hands. But that is not our place. And Joseph here realizes that. He says, I am not allowed to do that. He understands who God is, that God is the judge, that he alone can judge with equity. And he realizes who he is, that he is not the judge. Again, Tim Keller was helpful on this. I was listening to him yesterday. He said in a sermon, the fastest way to become like Satan is to try to be God. The fastest way to become like Satan is to try to be God. The fastest way to become like God is to refuse to be God. I was running when I listened to that, and I verbally said, whoa, that's good. <laughs> I think that, and that's what we do when we sin. Sin seeks to take God's place. Faith recognizes who we are and lets God be God. Let God take care of that, Joseph said. That, that's not my place, guys. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to inordinately do that. So, he, he recognizes um, that he is not God. Secondly, he realizes how God works. He realizes how God works. That's what he says, that you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. 
Remember he said back in chapter 45 that it was God who had sent him to Egypt, not the brothers. He saw that God was in control of even the evil done to Joseph by his brothers. And here he says that God is in the business of taking the evil in this world because of sin and the evil actions of others, and he turns them for good. You know, there's always dreams, I think, of people taking discarded items and making them valuable. One man's trash is another man's treasure. How amazing it would be, you know, when you think about energy crisis. What if we could take all of our trash and turn it into energy, electricity? Wouldn't that be amazing? That's sort of what's going on here. The miracle that God can take all the evil in the world and he can turn it for good. Joseph is now sitting here at the end of his life. He looks back and he sees the truth of this. He has no need to seek revenge. Because he sees that this was how God worked to save many people. We'll come back to this. But, so he, he recognizes that he is not God. He realizes how God works. And third, he reflects God's grace. He reflects God's grace. He, he not only says everything, he, he doesn't just say, you know, everything's okay, I'm not going to hurt you. It's not sort of like, I won't, I won't hurt you, but just get out of my face, okay? I love you guys, but I don't have to love you. No, what's he do? He extends grace to them. He shows mercy. Joseph teaches us how to respond when we are sinned against, when, when the evil of others hurt us. We, we, we recognize that we are not God. We realize how God works, that he turned the evil for good, and then we reflect grace to those who have hurt us. We shower them with mercy and with kindness. You know, how could Joseph have responded? If we look at the words and then imagine him doing the opposite, we see that he would have responded with retaliation, he would have responded with despair, and he would respond with insults. Retaliation! They should be afraid. They hurt me and they will pay for it. I'll make it. He could despair. You guys are right. This is terrible. You've ruined my life. You've made a mess of everything, and nothing good has come out of this. That's a self-centered way to think about it, for sure, because he could look around and see all the people that were saved, but he could look at himself and say, but I was hurt. He could insult. He could let them and everyone else know how despicable, how despicable they are, how terrible they are. In short, he could have held a grudge. He could have sought revenge. He could have put himself in the place of God. He could have ignored the good that had come. He could have felt personally hurt. He could have belittled his brothers. Sadly, that's how we often respond to evil, isn't it? We retaliate, we despair, we insult, we hold a grudge, we seek revenge. Sadly, that's the response that we see modeled by people in their respect. When your knee-jerk reaction to evil done against you is to retaliate, to despair, to insult, it reveals something about you. And it reveals something about who you think God is. So look at our own hearts and see where we are on this. Joseph doesn't respond in those ways. What does he respond with? Faith, hope, and love. Those three wonderful Christian virtues. He responds with faith, hope, and love. He shows kindness. He reminds us of someone. He reminds us of Jesus. He points forward to Jesus, the greater Joseph. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to who? 
the hymn who judges justly. Trust in God. He reminds us of Jesus who asked God to forgive those who crucified him because they didn't know what they were doing. He reminds us that God brought the greatest good in the entire world out of the greatest act of evil in all of human history. Jesus was the greater Joseph. Jesus was filled with faith and hope and love. He fulfilled that righteousness for us. And he calls us to follow him, to be people of faith and hope and love, even when we are sinned against. People understand who we are, who we are not, who God is. So when people sin against us, we remember Remember that we recognize that, that we are not God. We realize how God works, that even in this evil, he's working good. And then we reflect on grace. Now think a little bit bigger. Think about not just the evil against us, but the evil in the world at large. How do we respond to the evil, evil in, the, in the world at large? Can we, can we really look at the world and all that happens in it, and respond like Joseph does. Really? I mean, put hard things on this. I saw a headline that there was a, a school shooting at an elementary school, and a six-year-old died. Can I look at that, and can I say, God meant it for me? Can we really do that? I think that we can. Because I think Joseph's response is one of honest Honest faith. And honest faith is what will help us understand God's world and the evil that's in it. What honest faith is not, is it's not naive optimism. Okay? Naive optimism is sort of this, like, always look on the bright side of life. To put a positive spin on everything. That's not what Joseph is doing here, is he? Joseph's not just trying to put a positive spin on things. He, he faced massive pain in his life. And when he says these words, he is weeping because of what has happened to him. But he sees God's hand. And even as we see that the good that comes of, of something like the children of Israel being in Israel, the children of Israel being in Egypt now, we know that pain is also coming from that too. The call for the Christian is not to be Pollyanna. It's not to, to find the good in every situation. It's to recognize, to, to be honest about the evil and the pain in this world. So honest faith is not naive optimism, and it's not cynical pessimism. There are Christians who look at the world and can only conclude that everything is going to hell in the hand That's their, their conclusion, right? And they actually thrive on doom and gloom. You know some of these people. They, they, they believe that, and they kind of relish it. They sort of like it. Often the view we take is, is influenced by the situation that we're in. If things are going good, God is good. If things are going bad, the world is terrible. But Joseph gets to this point of honest faith. He's grown to heaven, and he, and he says these words, again, with tears in his eyes, because life is hard, and because pain is, is real, and because there are unanswered questions in life. I don't have an answer for that headline. Sometimes it feels like, like God kicks us when we're already down. But Joseph also could see and believe that all the pain he had gone through was turned for good. He had faith that God was big enough to turn evil for good. 
this honest faith that, that sees that God can turn evil for good is what's written over Joseph's life. It's what makes sense of the whole book of Genesis. This is why questions we often ask are answered in the mystery of God turning evil for good. Why, why did God create the world knowing that sin was a possibility? Why, why the tree? Why the serpent? Why, why the choice of Adam and Eve? Why did Cain kill Abel? Why the Tower of Bible? Why, why did Abraham and Isaac and Jacob make all the foolish choices that they made? Why the book of Genesis? Why does it go the way that it does? Because he wants us to know that God is in the business of turning evil for good. And nothing can thwart his plan. Nothing. Doesn't it give you an honest faith? A faith that's, that's realistic about pain and heartache, that's realistic about my own sin? That weeps at death but looks for another land? It's an honest faith that makes a person, this honest faith, it makes a person who is a Christian and who understands God's sovereign plan of turning evil for good, it makes you invincible. <laughs> Nothing can thwart what God is doing in this world. Nothing can harm you, including death. We can't make, you can't make a mess of your life. Jacob tried really hard, and God still blessed him. You, you can't no one can derail your life into oblivion because everything that is evil can be turned for good. We have to expand our definition of good, maybe. Good doesn't mean be comfortable all the time. Good doesn't mean I get everything that I want. Good meaning the glory of God, the furtherance of his kingdom in this world, not just my comfort, but the salvation of many people. The understanding when we look at evil, it, it, it makes us honest. Not, not just about the evil that impacts us, but the evil that is in us. Let's be honest about that, too. Joseph's brothers struggled with that honesty, even to the end. And so do we. Do we come to God like Joseph's brothers came to him? Do we, do we come trying to sort of make our sin seem smaller than it really is? Not recognizing the evil that's in us? Thinking that we can turn our evil for good? Hide our evil? Do we come trying to bring some sacrifice to appease God? Do we come and we admit that our sin, honestly, be honest about our sin and, and ask for mercy? The gospel doesn't tell us to clean up and then come down. It tells us that we are more despicable than we ever thought. And we need to We come admitting our sin. We come confessing that Christ's death and resurrection. That's just our only hope. Now, the gospel doesn't tell us just that we're more despicable than we ever thought. It also tells us we are more loved than we can ever dream. And when we come to Jesus and we're honest about our sin, he responds to us as the greater Joseph. He says, I am in the place of God. I am God, and your sin is against me. You should be scared. But then what does he say? Don't fear. Don't fear because I have voluntarily taken myself out of the place of God. I have humbled myself and become a servant. You don't have to come to me as a servant, because I did that already. I have humbled myself as a servant. I've become obedient to the point of 
death, and I have paid the price for your sin. Jesus is honest about sin. He pays the penalty for it. That all that was meant as evil against me, my Father has turned for good, so that many people should be kept alive for eternity. Jesus says to us, I will provide salvation for you. I have provided salvation for you. Through the greatest evil that was ever committed, I have turned it for good. And my death and my resurrection speak comfort and kindness to everyone who will repent and live. So we come to the table this morning. And as we come, we think about a crucified body. We think about shed blood. We think about death. And we think about evil. And by faith, we see that Jesus takes a broken body. He takes shed blood. And what does he turn it into? He turns it into bread that will nourish us. He turns it into wine that we are to rejoice in. The cross is the greatest reminder in your world that evil can be turned to good. So I invite you to remember that this morning, to remember that evil can be turned to good. I invite you to remember that Jesus is the one who has taken all of our evil, paid the penalty for it, has given us all of his righteousness, and turned us to be good in him. these words of benediction. May the God who calls us not to fear fill you with an honest faith in the face of death and sin and give you eyes to see how he has and will turn all evil for good. Amen.